Our study today is going to talk about Satan and Noah's day. And this brings us to the first point in your outline, the crucifixion conspiracy. Not covenant now, but conspiracy. Our study is looking at two threads in history. Two roads, if you please, affecting all of humanity since the fall into sin by Adam and Eve. Last week, we began to look at the first thread, the covenant seed, fundamental to the crucifixion covenant laid out by God. In order to have a Redeemer to fix what Adam in his sin ruined, God determined that another Adam, Adam means simply man, another man would come, another federal head would produce a righteous race by defeating Satan's intent of murder and mayhem. We learn that God took Eve's analysis of her sin seriously. Namely, that the serpent, Satan, had deceived her and thus she disobeyed God. The serpent, Satan, was cursed to a life of subordination, to eating dust all the days of his life, to have his pride humbled and his evil ambition reversed, and in the end, in the end, to have his life snuffed out, his head crushed by the very offspring of the woman, that he had deceived. Thus, as we say, the battle lines were drawn that day in Eden. As we learned, Satan took none of this lying down. Snake or, sn- snake or no, he immediately began to slither his way into the human culture of Adam's descendants with full force in an attempt to foil or in his mind to destroy God's remedy for sin in the coming crucified one. We see his fingerprints on the race, and you have them listed there in your bulletin. The first being fratricide. Fratricide comes from the Latin frata, meaning brother, and sede, to murder, hence to kill one's brother, literally. You all know the story. Eve conceived and her first child was Cain, of whom she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to another, to his brother Abel. You know the story that Abel was a shepherd, Cain became a farmer. Both honorable professions. Chapter 4 verse 3 states, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Genesis 4 verse 5. We would ask the question, why was Abel's offering favorable to God, but Cain's was not? We touched on this last week. The principle being taught to Adam and Eve was that fig leaves do not cover sin. Only blood sacrifices can make atonement. A life for a life and not not plant life, you understand. 
The saying, as the saying goes, you cannot get blood from a turnip. So Cain's vegetables from the garden contain no atoning remedy. Plant life is distinguished from animal life. And God reasoned with Cain. Here's what he said. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Genesis 4, verse 7. In other words, there was a remedy for Cain, even though this vegetable offering was not being accepted by God. What could he have done? Well, he could have bartered with Abel vegetables for a lamb. Did he do that? No, he refused to listen to God. In rage, he rose up against Abel. His brother killed him, buried him in the field, And so fratricide was the first murder, and it occurred in the first family. What is this? Well, Jesus explained, saying of the devil, He was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, verse 44. This we recall from our study last week on how Satan successfully brought death. He brought destruction to the human race through Adam and Eve's disobedience to God. But here with Cain killing Abel, we discover Satan attempting to kill off righteous Abel and his future offspring. Could that be a clue to us that the Christian faith is promoted mostly within family? Think about that. You teaching your children, they coming to know Christ, they teaching their children, They coming to know Christ. Isn't that where we find the lion's share of believers? It's in the family. So kill off the righteous family. We'll give a death blow to this covenant of grace. This was Satan in his work with Cain and Abel. The Apostle John interprets for us saying, This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. And then he talks about two lines. Listen to this. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. 1 John 3, verses 10 through 12. There is the commentary on what occurred in Genesis 6. God couldn't agree more. Replying to Cain's pathetic evasion. Well, am I my brother's keeper? When God says, where's your brother? God answered, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Genesis 4 verse 10. 
And Jesus gives us this commentary as he addressed the Pharisees of his day. Listen to this stinging indictment. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Matthew 23, verse 32 through verse 35. Satan's fingerprints were evident in the first family by the impetus he instilled in Cain to kill his righteous brother, Abel. A second fingerprint of Satan on the race can be found in chapter 4, verse 19, which reads, Lamech married two women, one named Ada, the other Zillah. Polygamy was a direct attack on God's marriage mandate given in Genesis 2, verse 24, where after Eve was brought to Adam by God, the will of God was stated, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, and they, the two of them, will become one flesh. Genesis 2, verse 24. Not the three of them, not the four of them, not whatever else in terms of multiples. The introduction of polygamy by Lamech was an attempt to challenge the two becoming one flesh principle of God's marriage mandate and thus cause consternation, rivalry, mayhem, even in the homes of godly men and women that we find in later history, in an attempt to pollute, here it is, the righteous line of Abel and corrupt the offspring of Eve, including the Messiah. Lamech was the child of Cain. And like his father, he was also a murderer. As he boasted to his two wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Chapter 4. Verse 23 and 24. You see what's going on here? This guy is thumbing his nose at God. Through murder and polygamy, Lamech was asserting his independence from the rules of God as he set out to establish his own rules for life and separate himself and his family from everything governed by righteousness and by divine propriety. He would become... Master of his own destiny. God wasn't going to tell him what to do. Master of his own destiny? Does that sound like somebody we know? That is what Satan aspired to that we studied a week ago. 
But God intervened by giving Adam and Eve a third son named Seth. It says, in the place of Abel, chapter 4, verse 25. And the next verse reads, At that time men began to call on the name of the Lord. Men like Enoch, of whom it is said, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more, because God took him away. Lamech, the seventh from Adam, in the line of Cain, was evil personified. But Enoch, the seventh from Adam in the line of Seth, according to Jude 14, received this commendation from God, Hebrews 11 verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 5, verse 6. That was Enoch, the seventh from Adam in the line of Seth. Lamech, like the serpent who possessed him, lived his life as a murderer and as a polygamist, thumbing his nose at the commands of God. But he went the way of all sinners. He died in his sin, under the weight of his sin, without hope, without God. So, Satan is working his evil. In the first family, we have fratricide. In the first family, we have polygamy. God intervenes in providing a replacement for Abel in Seth. So the righteous line is reestablished, kept going. So Satan, however, he didn't give up. What follows next in the Genesis account is a proliferation of evil amongst Cain's descendants contrasted with the man Noah of whom our text says, verse 9, verse 10, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. This acknowledgement by God concerning Noah and his family is summarized in verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I don't think we can fully grasp this without the backdrop of Noah's culture added to the mix. What does God say about Noah's culture? His day, can I say it that way? His time in history. Here's what he says. Verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, how wicked is wicked, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil or
faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Hosea 4, the first two verses. Wow, what a description in Hosea's day. No acknowledgement of God. That's the key. There you have it. David writes it this way. He says, David, the servant of the Lord, an oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. For there is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Even on his bed, he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. Psalm 36, the first four verses. Can I say it? This was Noah's generation. God said that the earth was not only corrupt in God's sight, but full of violence. Murder was the way they dealt with differences. Where was all this coming from? I mean, think of, how does violence become the predominant way of relating to others? We read from Ezekiel the other week of Satan's expulsion from heaven by God. And this is what we read. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mountain of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Ezekiel 28, verse 16. This one who was a murderer from the beginning, says Jesus, John eight forty four. Ezekiel says, yeah, you, you were violent. You became violent. The father of murder is a violent foe. He thrives on violence. He thrives on corruption. And from our text, it appears that it appears that Satan was rather successful in spoiling the human race. It certainly appears as though he made gallant inroads in an attempt to keep the seed of the woman from being born and from becoming his destroyer. His fingerprints were all over the human race in the days of Noah. He was well on his way to a winning strategy of violence and corruption. How could the race possibly survive? That brings us to point three in our outline, God's intervention to wash away Satan's fingerprints. Two-prong attack by God. Prong number one, verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. King James Version says grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What is this? This is one man, and later, his family, 
standing against the culture. Everywhere around him lay a cesspool of intrigue and violence and murder and immorality and greed and robbery and deceit and hatred. That's everywhere that Noah was. He was in this world in his day. Don't tell me you cannot resist the temptation of our day. This was black, black in Noah's day. But it is, as Jesus told his disciples, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Oh, yeah, yeah. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. John 15, verse 19. So people live in the world. Christians live in this world until the day of our demise. Though we're living in this environment, we're not of this world. We have a different philosophy. We have a different goal. We have a different work ethic. We have a different behavior ethic. There's everything different about us. This was Noah as well. He didn't, can I say it? He didn't belong to the world of his day, though he lived there. He didn't fit in with the crowd. Let me read it for you. By faith, Noah, when warned of things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Hebrews 11, verse 7. Here's a man of faith, faith in God, not faith in himself. And that faith, by that faith, he condemned his surrounding culture. And what was God doing while Noah built the ark? Let me read it for you from 1 Peter 3. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. 1 Peter 3, verse 20. And why only eight people saved? Who are they, by the way? Well, it would be Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. That's eight. No children yet. No young children. We read, He, God, did not spare the ancient world when He brought the flood on its ungodly people, but He protected Noah a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. 2 Peter 2, verse 5. The people of Noah's generation were not spared because they did not heed the preaching of righteousness, which was Noah's message, preferring instead the continuation of their own ungodly lifestyle. So Noah was the first prong of God's solution to the proliferation of wickedness in the culture. But no one gave credence to his message. Righteousness was not totally snuffed out. There was a man who had a family that believed God and trusted. 
It was to be the same in later history when Isaiah would lament before God, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53, verse 1. Applied answer? No one. No one's listening. Why not? He says later in Isaiah 65 and verse 2, All day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. Isaiah 65 verse 2. And again verse 8 of our text. The only thing around in Noah's day is a proliferation of wickedness. Prong number two, utilized by God to eradicate Satan's corruption of the race, is in verse 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Verse 13. And why was this essential? Look at verse 17 and following. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Genesis 6, verse 17 and 18. I will establish my covenant with you. We see, we have this contest going on here. We have the crucifixion covenant and we have the crucifixion conspiracy. God has his covenant in place and Satan through his conspiracy is trying to destroy that. But God's crucifixion covenant is stronger than the conspiracy. Nothing, not even a world filled with only evil all the time. Verse 5 will frustrate or deter the intent of God to redeem creation and bring about a godly people. Do you know what the flood did? The flood brought Satan back to square one. Back to square one. He had to begin again to corrupt the race. We do not know how long it took for Satan to bring the race the point of God's annihilation in the flood. But judging from the very long lifespans of this, these initial families, let me read some of them for you. 800 years for Adam. 912 years for Seth. 815 years for Enosh. Not Enoch, this is a different person. Enosh. 910 years for a man named Kenan. 895 years for a man named Mahaliel. Noah himself, according to Genesis 9 verse 29, 950 years for Noah. Check chapter 5 for the genealogy. From all of this, it would appear that thousands of years transpired before the great flood of judgment came. But delay to judgment is not the same as suspension of judgment. Peter tells us that God is patient and he's long-suffering with what? Evil men, 
not willing that any of his people should perish, is the idea. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Noah took 120 years to build the ark. Verse 3 of our text tells us that. Man's days, in other words, man has, from this point, Noah, from the time you start this ark, your generation has 120 years. That's it. It doesn't matter how long you're going to live. These people have 120 years, that's it. Now, think about that. Even by today's standards, that's an unheard of length of time to build a boat. But did we not read, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. 1 Peter 3, verse 20. And I want to ask God, why wait? Are things going to improve? Not likely. Why wait, Lord? Peter answers, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. When judgment falls from God, It's always just. It's always just. Thank God for his patience. Thank God for his long suffering. It ought not to be an occasion of mockery as it was in the epistle of Peter with his contemporaries. I'm sure there was a lot of mockery going on in Noah's day as he built the boat. Hey, Mr. Noah with the white beard, what you building there, boy? Boy, that thing's awful huge. A narc? What's the narc? Oh, water? You're building it in a plain, Noah. There's no water here. There's no rivers. Where's the water? You read the text carefully and you will find out that in the Genesis account, it does not talk about rain. Rain, R-A-I-N, until the time of Noah. Noah's flood. I'll say, oh, well, how... Oh, how could things grow without rain? It it, it says so in the scriptures. It it says a mist arose from the earth and watered the plants. Oh, water from down up instead of from top down. Rain? Noah, what's that? Preacher of righteousness, you will find out. And he preached. Now that brings us to the New Testament, to the sign of Noah. Jesus uses the sign of Noah to predict the last destruction of the world. Noah's flood was devastating. The Bible declares that God opened the floodgates of heaven. There it is. And the springs of the great deep burst forth. And the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Genesis 7, verse 12. In verse 17, it says, For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. And the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens. Not local flood. Under the entire heavens were covered. 
The waters rose and covered the mountains. I'm still reading scripture. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Does that sound like a local flood? Genesis 7, 17 through 20. What, from where we know the Garden of Eden was, what are the mountain ranges around that Mesopotamian area? The highest mountains we have on earth. The Himalayas and Mount Everest. The mountains of Ararat and so on. And so when we read... The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Even if you were going to hedge on that and say, well, this was just a little local flood. It wasn't really universal. If it covered the mountain of Ararat and the Himalayas and Mount Everest, is there any place else on earth where water would not seek its own level? What was the result? Oh, and by the way, the fossil record shows that Noah's flood actually occurred. They find fish fossils up on these big mountain ranges. What was the result? Let me read it for you. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals, the creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah's left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Genesis 7, 23 and 24. It is true that God is extremely long-suffering, extremely patient with rebellious men. But look out when God's patience comes to an end. The psalmist says it this way. You alone are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you're angry? Psalm 76 verse 7. Or again, but the Lord is the true God. He's the living God, the eternal King. When He is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure His wrath. Jeremiah 10 verse 10. God promised never to destroy the earth again with a flood. And he placed the rainbow in the sky as a symbol of his promise. And here's what he said. Whoever, whenever, excuse me, that whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting what? Covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all life on earth. Genesis 9, verse 16 and 17. With that said, and the promise secure, Jesus, nonetheless, uses Noah as a sign of his own coming judgment. Here's what he says. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planning, building. 
But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Luke 17, verses 26 through 30. Matthew's account adds, They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24. Verse 39. I have to ask, okay, how come the people of Noah's day didn't know that an impending doom of destruction was hanging over their heads? Yeah, they were warned by the preacher Noah, but nothing he said convinced them. What good's the message if, if, if you don't Apply it if you don't believe it, if you don't act upon it. It's the same in our day with anyone who dares to tell it like God said it. Jesus' faith is the same censorship. We read, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fill the word of the prophet Isaiah who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so that they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. John 12, verses 37. What's that? That's God's patience running out. That's what it is. God gets to the point where, okay, you don't want to hear. You don't want to respond to the message of salvation. Go, have it your way. You want to go like this? Plug your ears, don't want to listen. Okay, then be deaf. Don't hear with your hearts. Don't understand. You wanted it that way. I grant you your wish. That brings us then to the lessons of Noah. What are the lessons of Noah? I'm sure there are many, but I'm only listing two. The first is this. The worst is yet to come. That's the first lesson of Noah. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief's says Peter, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything will be laid bare. Second Peter 3, verse 10. The psalmist says, nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. Melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolation He has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 46. Verses 6 through 10. Or once again, 
The psalmist writes, His lightning lights up the world. The earth seizes, sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Psalm 97, verses 4 through 6. It took thousands of years, I think, it took thousands of years before the patience of God ran out in the days of Noah. But in the end, the flood still came. And if my calculations are correct, it has been millenniums, thousands of years since Noah's flood and Satan's rebuild of lost ground. I ask this question, is not our culture, is not our culture ripe once again for the judgment of God? Could verse 5 be written over our culture that the only thing going on in our culture is evil continually all the time? is not the worst to come just around the corner. That's the first lesson of Noah. See, people, and it happened in Peter's day, people think because God's judgment doesn't fall, boom, instantly, when a person does something evil and wicked and conniving and corrupt, God hasn't seen. Or, God doesn't care what I do. Or, there's no God. I'm an atheist. I think God out of my existence, and it is so. That's the way people think. And Peter said, no, 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 (laughs) no, no, no. You, You don't understand the character of God. What you should be thinking is, God is very patient, very long-suffering with your indolence, with your ignorance, with your wickedness. And instead of mocking God, you ought to fall down on your knees and thank God that he is long-suffering. Because once judgment falls, there's no opportunity of salvation for you if when it falls you're found in a state of Lamech waving his fist in the face of God. The first lesson of Noah is the worst is yet to come. And the only reason I say that is because Jesus uses Noah And what happened in his generation to what's going to happen when he, Jesus, returns in judgment. The second lesson of Noah is this. The best is yet to come. Let me read it for you. Paul writing to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. 
no to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is what is good, not evil, of course. Titus 2, verse 11, 14. God has something in place. It's working. It's his grace It's working. Again, we read, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire. Save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear. Hating even the clothes stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault without and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Jude verse 21 through 25. The worst is yet to come but let me tell you something. The best is yet to come. That's those two roads that we've been talking about. It's those two paths that people are on. And while the worst is yet to come, redemption is waiting in the wings to take us to eternal life. Now, which road are you on? Which path are you traveling? The broad road that leads to destruction with all the pleasures of sin or the narrow, restrictive, hard, difficult road where mockery, where persecution, where all the things that wicked men can do to the righteous are done. Inspired by the evil one that possesses them. But nothing can shake you off of that road. It's the road Christ took and all that follow in his train will make it. We'll make it. I hope you're on the narrow road. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. How marvelous indeed is the covenant that assures that Christ will make it to the cross and will defeat his foes. And how feeble the attempt of the evil one, though successfully corrupting the race, in the end being defeated and abandoned to the abyss of hell, along with all of his minions, his supporters, and his followers. God, help us to be on the right road. And if we're not, may you find us today and snatch us. You told us to snatch those that were in in the flames, burning ones. Snatch them from the fire. Lord, would you snatch someone from the fire today? Bring them to know Christ as Savior. For your glory and their good, we pray these things. Amen.